meaning of celibacy and so forth. And while I was reading those quotes, some of you that were there in the pews, your mouths were dropping down to the floor as I was realizing. Others who were as well. And uh, people like vigilantius were uh, uh, condemned as, well, as vigilantius himself was condemned as a heretic. Uh, Jerome wrote strongly against him. And uh, so we talked about that last time. And oftentimes, uh, when you stand up for the truth of Scripture on certain subjects, you might have more of the professing church come against you than before you, you know, than, than be supporting you. And so that's yeah. Just a question. I wasn't able to ask you. So Jerome was like big on celibacy and low on marriage then? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He was a strong opponent of Vigilantius, even though they had known each other personally and had spent time together. So we talked about that. And then we talked about end times, and uh, we looked at the millennium and the teachings of the church fathers concerning the Antichrist and concerning the Great Tribulation as well. And uh, we talked about how the majority of the church fathers were premillennial. And uh, it was later on when the allegorical interpretation through people like Origen and then really with Augustine, when he really made it popular, his view of eschatology, which was more of an amillennial view, not a premillennial view. He was premillennial. He changed later on. Because of his great influence, while premillennialism dominated the scene early on, after Augustine, Augustine, amillennialism would dominate the scene throughout the Middle Ages up until after the Reformation, when people started to, it became more widespread to uh, understand the, the text, not simply in an allegorical way, but in a, the plain meaning of the text, the literal meaning of the text. And so premillennialism was revived again uh, after, some generations after the Reformation. And of course, it is again now. So we, we looked at those things. So this morning, what we're going to do is, I think we'll finish up probably today this uh, lesson of teachings of the Church Fathers, just on some various subjects. We're going to start by looking at the subject of baptism and uh, look at what was being taught in those early centuries concerning uh, the subject of baptism. Now, for us, uh, this subject isn't really a difficult one. I think it's really simple. We just uh, look in the New Testament, and uh, we see, as we look at the New Testament, that only converts were baptized, and uh, they were immersed in water. You know, they weren't Water wasn't just poured on their heads. They were dipped in the water. And uh, we never see even one example of an infant being baptized, ever. And there are those who will say that in the book of Acts, uh, there was whole households that were baptized. Uh, but that's in two passages. But if you look at one of those passages, it defines the household that was baptized as those who had believed. Right? So an infant can't yet believe. And uh, when we look at the New Testament, we also don't see the concept of baptismal regeneration, which is the belief that you are regenerated or born again in the waters of baptism. Uh, you don't see any of that in the New Testament. For us, really, it's simple. We look at the New Testament, we see plain and simple what the New Testament teaches about baptism. We don't try to add anything to it or take anything away. And so uh, that's why, I guess, theologically, you could say we're Baptists, right? So because of our beliefs about baptism. Uh, but, again, nowadays there's so many who share our views on baptism that, you know, Pentecostals, uh, many non-denominational, and others, they would agree with us concerning uh, baptism. Uh, 
But it's interesting because in this debate on baptism, uh, when you look at historical works about baptism, uh, both uh, credo Baptists, which we would be, that is, only those who make a profession of faith should be baptized, and pedo Baptists on the other side who believe also in baptizing infants, a lot of times they will abuse history uh, to try to support uh, what they're saying. And those things we need to be really careful of. We have to be honest with the historical data that we have. And so that's uh, really important to mention. But we know what the New Testament teaches about this. It's not really difficult. It's quite simple. But after the New Testament was completed, we want to ask, what did the earliest writings say about baptism? And one of the earliest quotes that we have comes from the Didache. And we read this before, but let me just remind you of it and read to you this quote from the Didache, which dates around 95 AD, right around the end of the New Testament being written. And here's what we read there about baptism. Concerning baptism, baptize in this manner. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in living water. So you notice there, baptize in, in the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's important because Nowadays, you do have the movements that are called the Jesus-only movement, where you baptize in the name of Jesus only. But in the earliest writing that we have here outside the New Testament, we see the baptizing in the name of the, the Trinity, all three persons. And then it says in living water. I believe that would be in running water. So it's, some of the things in this quote are quite interesting. But, but if you have no living water, baptize into other water. If you cannot baptize in cold water, baptize in water. But if you do not have either, pour out water three times upon the person's head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, before the baptism, let the baptizer fast, and the one to be baptized, together with whoever else can. But you will instruct the one to be baptized to fast one or two days before the baptism. So, some things in there obviously aren't directions given to us in Scripture, but they're, they're optional. But you notice here what was the the directions concerning how a person is to be baptized. It clearly was immersion. Uh, the person was to be dipped in the water completely. Now, there is the question that comes up, even among Baptists on the mission field at times, and that is, what do you do if you, you're not in a place with a body of water? Um, I once heard a Southern Baptist, I think it was, being interviewed on a radio program, and he talked about how, you know, they're basically missionaries out in the desert, I think the only water they had may come from under the ground a little bit, but they didn't have any body of water. And this isn't a place where you just get in a car or drive 100 miles somewhere. So what do you do? And um, it's interesting because what he said they did was, the missionaries there, they, they had uh, some kind of a, a hole in the ground or something. So like you dig like a, like a pool in the ground, but there's no water in it. And so they kind of put the person under like that. And the, some of the people that were supporting the mission work didn't appreciate that. Uh, but they couldn't bring in like a big tub of water either. So it was quite interesting how you handle that. Well, he, and there's different opinions on that. Uh, here uh, in the Dedicate, their direction was if you don't have a body of water, then just pour it on the head. But if you're not in that situation, if you have a body of water, dip them in the water. So I know there's different opinions on that. And you know, some people say it's not really a baptism if that's the case because they're not immersed. But either way, those things probably aren't, you know, 
the most important debate. But either way, we see here that what was the, the goal? You immersed him in the water. That's what we see. And we see this as people who made a profession of faith, not Indians. Okay, then Hermas, he wrote this. This is from the chapter of Hermas. The apostles themselves also gave them the seal of the preaching, that's baptism. Accordingly, they descended with them into the water and ascended again. So again, that gives you the picture of immersion. You go down into the water, you baptize the individual, you come up again. So those are two of the earliest that we have. And in many ways, that matches up with what we have, what we see in the New Testament. Now, after this, there are many different perspectives in the first four centuries after the New Testament was completed. And the reason for that is baptism was not an area of focused debate, like we talked about with the Trinity and the doctrines concerning Christ and doctrines concerning the sovereignty of God and salvation and man's will. Baptism wasn't so much a focused area of debate, and there are different reasons for different views that are given. Uh, but what you see is all those people claim that they're following the tradition of the apostles for their view. So oftentimes you see, we do this because this is passed on by the apostles. And someone else would just say, oh, we do this because this is passed on by the apostles. And they can't all have been. So that's just interesting. Now let me quote to you from Justin Martyr, who's in the, about the year uh, 150 or 160. And as you're going to see here, some problems enter in. Uh, you're going to see here still baptism simply by immersion. But you're also going to see some unbiblical ideas coming in. And again, put yourself in his shoes. This is a man who probably didn't have the writings of Paul. And how would your theology be if you didn't have any of Paul's epistles? You, know, you, you take it that. So in some ways, you know, you can't really judge the person if they're, if they're doing the best that they have. You judge the teaching. But it's hard. You don't know the condition of the person's heart and where they would end up if they were thoroughly had a thorough knowledge of Paul's writings. But here's what Justin Martyr said: I will also relate the manner in which we dedicated ourselves to God when we had been made new through Christ. As many as are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true, and undertake to be able to live accordingly, are instructed to pray and to entreat God with fasting for the remission of their past sins. The rest of us pray and fast with them. They are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated. They there receive the washing with water in the name of God, the Father and Lord of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. For Christ also said, unless you are born again, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the first two quotes we saw immersion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We see that same still here with Justin Martin. You only have converts being baptized. But what you also have here is, it seems to be the belief that a person is regenerated in the waters of baptism. That's the first time we see this here at about the year 160. And uh, we'll read a quote later of why some of the church fathers started to link regeneration with, with baptism. But you see this here with Justin Martyr. So you're going to see some changes early on. And it became common for church fathers to refer to baptism as the bath of regeneration. And uh, so, just want to mention that as well. 
Now, for the rest of some of this here, I want to give credit to James White because he has a really good teaching on this about baptism from the church father. So a lot of this I pick up from him, but uh, I'll read you the quotes, and then we'll go from there. We're going to look at what Tertullian, if you remember, Tertullian was late 100s, early 200s. And uh, he also rejected the baptism of infants. Uh, but I want to give you some quotes from him concerning baptism. Okay, here's his first one. When we are going to enter the water, but a little before, in the presence of the congregation and under the hand of the president, we solemnly profess that we disown the devil, his pomp, and his angels. Upon that, we are immersed, in the Latin word there for immersed uh, means to dip. We dip three times, making a somewhat ampler pledge than the Lord has appointed in the gospel. Then, when we are taken up, we taste, first of all, a mixture of milk and honey. Then, from that day, we refrain from the daily bath for a whole week. <laughs> okay, now, I want you to think of this. We see here again, only those who make a profession of faith are baptized, and they are immersed in water. That's still what you see. But you do see some traditions coming in here that aren't exactly in scriptures. He says that we dip them three times. Once, twice, three times. And he even says... This is going beyond what the Lord directed in the gospel. You know, so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit three times. And then they would take milk and honey afterwards, which seems to have been a local practice. We don't see it in any other of the writings of the church fathers uh, either. But uh, that's what you see uh, right there. Local customs were quite interesting because, for example, in Egypt, it, it differed on location. So, for example, in Egypt at this time, uh, before converts were baptized, they would uh, go through an exorcism. Uh, the belief that the devil was to be uh, cast out. And in Egypt, also, baptisms were done naked at this time as well. So, I mean, to us, I know this seems so odd, and you say, how do you get this from the New Testament? But, again, some of these things were uh, developing that were just not uh, biblical. But immersion was still the standard. And even if we still have church buildings from the 3rd and 4th centuries, from the 200s and 300s, and if you look at their baptistries, it's big enough for you to go in, to be completely immersed, and to come back out. And so that's what we still see that the practice was. Also, baptism for many was commonly done by this time not backwards anymore, as we do, but forwards. So just to show you some of the different things. One thing we also see, though, that was the common practice is no one could partake of the Lord's Supper until they were baptized as a believer. And, uh, and again, only those who were baptized could be disciples of speaking and understanding Greek. That's one thing I think that they do more accurately than many of our churches today. Is a lot of times in our churches today you have people partaking of the Lord's Supper before they're ever baptized. And that's something you don't see in the it was, you, were, you made a profession of faith, you were baptized, and then you were in the church, and then you partook of the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting because um, I heard an example used this week of how, for many Baptist churches, it is very odd to have the concept of guarding the table. That is, the elders want to try their best to make sure that it's only those who have a credible profession of faith who partake of the Lord's Supper. 
that's common in Reformed Baptist churches, but that's not as common in non-Reformed Baptist churches. And uh, it's interesting because I think all Baptists would agree with the concept of guarding the baptistry, at least not anymore maybe, but, you know, Bible-believing ones are guarding the baptistry. That is, you don't just baptize anybody. Uh, the same with the Lord's Supper. You don't just give the Lord's Supper to anybody. And uh, that's uh, just important to uh, remember. Now, let me give you the next quote here from Tertullian. I will turn to that highest authority of our seal itself. When entering the water, we make profession of the Christian faith in the words of its rules. We then bear public testimony that we have renounced the devil, his pop, and his angels. So just to show you again, only those who made a profession of faith were to be baptized, according to Tertullian at this time. And there's an emphasis on that. Even at this time, you probably don't remember what we talked about before. There was a controversy called the Novationist Controversy. And one of the leaders involved in that schism, there was some, some controversy that was taking place with him because he was baptized by a fusion, not immersion. Water was just poured on him. And so that was seen as not being biblical. So again, the emphasis on making a profession of faith, being immersed in the water. Then by this time, you started to have what was called clinical or emergency baptisms. And I'll give you a quote from James White, and here's where you have, again, some more unbiblical things developing. He says this, identification of baptism as a rite that accomplishes something in and of itself, that, that was the idea that was going on. Baptism is a rite or a ceremony that accomplishes something in and of itself. So when people started to view it that way, they started to get a very unbiblical view of baptism. They didn't get that from scripture, but this, these traditions developed that were very problematic. And it led to the idea that baptism was a means of washing away sin. And that's what started to let me quote to you from Cyprian, who again was in the 200s. Here's what he says. It is required then that the water should first be cleansed and sanctified by the priest. Now remember, presbyter, the pastors at this time, started to be called priests in the 3rd century. So that it may wash away by its baptism the sins of the man who is baptized. For the Lord says by Ezekiel the prophet, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be cleansed from all your filthiness. There's the problem, is they would take portions of scripture that, that speak about spiritual cleansing and regeneration, and they would identify that with baptism, and they would see baptism then as a means of washing away sins, and when you are regenerated. And so there is a big problem. Many people look at Ephesians, or excuse me, about uh, John chapter 3, where Jesus speaks about being born of water and of the Spirit as a baptism, as when you're regenerated and born again. But Jesus was referring back to Ezekiel. He's referring back to that spiritual cleansing that we receive, obviously, when we are, are saved by the Lord. Now, let me also tell you two different problems that develop because of this. As late as the Council of Nicaea, so at about 325 A.D., Constantine, just an example, he put off baptism until late in life. And this became the practice of some. So they would profess faith in Christ, but they wouldn't be baptized until they thought, like, right before they're going to die. The reason for that is because the belief developed that baptism washed away all of your past sins. And 
you see Justin Martyr was even talking about this a little bit. And so if a washes well your passings, uh, you should do it right before you die because then you're not going to have any sins that you commit before you die. So the power of tradition here is beginning to, uh, <laughs> how do you say, blur people's understanding of the gospel itself. And so you have that. And then also because of this idea, children began to be baptized when they became six. That was not the normal situation, um, but nevertheless it would happen because they thought, okay, the children shall be sick. We baptize them. All the sins are gone from the past. And then the child will maybe go to heaven. So this is what's developing. Let me give you also from Tertullian a third quote. Uh, here's what he says. If I can find it here. Hmm. Oh, here we go. Sorry. It's on this table. Okay. Happy is our sacrament of water. In that, by washing away the sins of our early blindness, we are set free and admitted into eternal life. A treatise on this matter will not be superfluous, instructing not only such as are becoming formed in the faith, but them who, content with having simply believed without full examination of the grounds of the traditions, carried through ignorance and untried, though probable, faith. So that from the very fact that with so great simplicity without pomp, Without any considerable novelty of preparation, finally without expense, a man is dipped in water, and amid the utterance of some few words is sprinkled and then rises again, not much or not at all, the cleaner, the consequent attainment of eternity is esteemed more incredible. So there again you have only believers immersed in water, but then again this unbiblical view of what baptism accomplishes is what is going on here. So the idea that it brings eternal life is uh, there at this time. Then, I'll give you this other quote. When we are going, this is from Tertullian, when we are going to enter the water, but a little before in the presence of the congregation and under the hand of the president, oh, sorry, wrong quote. When we have come from the font, we are thoroughly anointed with a blessed unction, that's oil. This practice comes from the old discipline where on entering the priesthood, men used to be anointed with oil from a horn. In our case, the oil runs physically, but it profits us spiritually. It is similar to the act of baptism itself, which is also physical, in that we are plunged in water. Yet, its effect is spiritual, in that we are free from sin. Next, the hand is laid on us, invoking the inviting of the Holy Spirit through a benediction. This is derived from the old sacramental rite in which Jacob blessed his grandsons who were born of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, with his hands laid on them and crossed. Then that most Holy Spirit willingly descends from the Father over our cleansed and blessed bodies. So here you have the practice that Tertullian's talking about of putting oil on the one who is baptized and laying hands on them, and then they believe they receive the Holy Spirit. So here we see again just the power of tradition and the, the ability of using Scripture wrongly to try to justify your tradition. And, you know, when we look at this, we can see this, wow, how, how could they have thought this way? But at the same time, it should cause us to be careful because... Uh, we can be blinded by our own traditions too. And uh, let me just give you an example. There was no idea in the early church of, at the end of the sermon, inviting people to come up to the front of the altar to be saved. Right? I'm not saying people weren't converted that way. I think there are many times people are. But it's not because of the altar call. It's in spite of the altar call. 
many times. And uh, what has that turned into for many people? It's no different than what baptism was for a lot of people here. I said the prayer. I can remember when I was at a Bible college out in California, we were in a meeting, a soul winning meeting, as they would call it, where you would talk about going out and you were scheduled to go out and talk to people about the gospel, give them tracts. And I remember there was a young lady in front, she talked about a situation she's in, but she said, you know, I think she was a fine Christian lady, don't get me wrong, but she was just confused on some of these issues. And she said, uh, you know, he said the prayer, so. And you see what this turns into. You know, he said the prayer. It, it's not much different to what baptism became for them. You know, so if they're reading what we would say about the sin, what many would say about the sinner's prayer, they'd probably think the same thing. Like, what, what, what are they doing? You know, so tradition is very powerful, and a lot of times we fail to recognize that. Uh, yes, Mike. Well, I was just going to say, you know, again, being affiliated with some of the IMP churches that we've been affiliated with, and gone out with them solely, you know, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's, it's very man-centered, number one, but number two, they'll, they'll come and say, oh, how many, how many, got, how many of you get saved in prayer? How many of you get saved? You know, and you sit in the service on Sunday morning, it's almost like a kind of a braggadocious Friday evening, there out in California, we had a men's, all the men gathered. So we're talking, probably 400 or whatever, in the in the room, maybe 500. And the preacher would walk in, and boy, did that get loud. They were yeah! holding up their Bibles. It was so loud, you could barely hear yourself talk. And he gets up, and, and you could give testimony, and someone raised their hand. Yes, that's a, six people not saved today! Yeah! <laughs> like that. And, you know, so think about, like, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Cyprian. If they're sitting in the time, you're thinking, what are they talking about? But there again is the power of tradition. And if that group there, if I would have read these quotes to them, they'd be thinking, what is this church father saying? But that was the power of their tradition. So that's why we always, always got to go back to Scripture. And it's good to look at history because we can see how these things develop and why they develop. Just like you can see where the altar call developed developed in the 1800s, and where that all comes from. So, this is, it's important for us to do that, to always ask, are these just traditions that develop later that I'm following, or does this really come from, from Scripture? So, let's just uh, mention then who Tertullian said should baptize, uh, just to see what they said. Of giving baptism, the chief priest, who is the bishop, has the right. In the next place, the presbyters and deacons, yet not without the bishop's authority on account of the honor of the church. For when it is preserved, peace is preserved. In addition to these, laymen have the right. For what is equally received can be equally given. So unless bishops, presbyters, or deacons are present at the location, other disciples are called to the work. But how much more is the rule of reverence and modesty necessary to laymen, seeing that these powers belong to their superiors? The most holy apostle has said all things are lawful, but not all expedient. So it was Tertullian's belief that any a man who was a disciple could baptize, uh, but it should be done by the church leaders, at least with their practice, uh, if, if they were present. 
he did not believe that women should baptize though, and here's just, he talks about a man who wrote a epistle in Paul's name, uh, wrongly saying it was Paul, but it was actually his epistle. And in there, there was a woman named Thecla who baptized. And uh, Tertullian's talks about how this is all wrong. But if the writings which wrongly go under Paul's name claim Thecla's example as a license for women teaching and baptizing, let them know that in Asia, the presbyter who composed that writing, as if he were augmenting Paul's fame from his own store, after being convicted and confessing that he had done it from love of Paul, was removed from his office. For how credible would it seem that he who has not, who has not permitted a woman even to learn with overboldness should give a female the power of teaching and of baptizing? Let them be silent, he says, and at home consult their own husbands. So there was this the presbyter who wrote this in Paul's name, he was kicked out of the office. Uh, but Tertullian was saying that's not right. The women should, should not baptize. So that's what they believed about that as well. Then quote, one more quote I'll give you here from Tertullian. Moreover, a presumptuous confidence in baptism introduces all kinds of vicious delay with regard to repentance. So he's talking about those who are going to be baptized, but they're not really repentant. So they have this problem with this. Okay, baptism washes away my sins. I don't have to change. Does that sound familiar? Or I think even about the sinner's prayer. I pray the prayer. I'm saved, you know. And uh, easy believism, and I'm going to heaven. Well, they dealt with that too. For feeling sure of undoubted pardon of their sins, men meanwhile steal the intervening time and make it for themselves into a holiday time for sinning, rather than a time for learning not to sin. Further, how inconsistent is it to expect pardon of sins to be granted through a repentance which they have not fulfilled. The baptismal washing is a sealing of faith, which faith has begun and is commended by the faith of repentance. We are not washed in order that we may cease sinning, but because we have ceased, since in heart we have been bathed already. So you can make the argument there, did, did you see regeneration taking place inwardly first? You know, there seems to be a lot of confusion amongst some of these men. Uh, and like there was with Justin Martyr as well, just a, a confusion of order and how these things take place. But again, for someone like Justin, who didn't have all the scriptures, you know, we got a question where would you be also. So there's kind of a mix here. But baptism had to be had to be done in genuine faith and repentance is what he was saying. Now, after Tertullian, or later in Tertullian's life, you have Cyprian, who I mentioned earlier, in the 200s. And he begins to promote infant uh, baptism. I'm not saying he was the first one that did, but he was big in promoting infant baptism. And some believed in doing it on the eighth day, because of circumcision. And uh, others believed in doing it as soon as possible. Uh, but still, even later church buildings, you still have full baptismal fonts. So you have someone like Cyprian in Africa, Tertullian in Africa, and Constantine and Rome, all having different opinions on baptism because of the different influences and beliefs of their local areas that they lived. And all of them would have pointed back to apostolic tradition for why they believed what they did. Infant baptism then begins to exist alongside with adult bas baptism as some put off baptism later on in life, to later on in life. Once sacralism is established, that is the church and the state mixing. Infant baptism grows, and adult baptism becomes less and less through the Middle Ages. And it's like usually if you have adult converts or missionaries going somewhere, you know, you see adults being baptized. But for the most part, it's just uh, infants uh, being baptized. 
But immersion still continues as the practice for a long time, not just pouring or, or sprinkling or anything like that. So we started here from the beginning. We talked about the New Testament. We read some of the earliest quotes. We see immersion, and we see only believers. And then as you move on, you see these traditions being added on to baptism, the wrong view of baptism and regeneration and past sins being forgiven only through it. And then you have infants being baptized. You have people waiting until later on in life. All these things develop, and these traditions become very powerful. But you can see how it's a slow moving away from the uh, New Testament practice. Infant baptism becomes the way, eventually, in Europe to become a part of the church and the nation. And uh, again, when there's not a lot of literacy later on in the Middle Ages, and not a lot of uh, communication like we have today, you have... Uh, just a decline of the view of baptism, like you kind of had with marriage, too, and eventually with the Lord's Supper in all of these uh, areas. So that's what we see. Now, before moving on from baptism, though, let me just mention this. Uh, there is, okay, so let's, let's talk about our church. Let's say Reformed Baptist Church, right? Well, it's interesting the words Reformed Baptist, because if you just take plain Reformed, uh, Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, you have the practice there of baptizing infants. And their beliefs about baptizing infants would be different than the Lutheran belief and the Roman Catholic belief. I would say it's not as erroneous as Roman Catholic belief or even as Lutheran belief. But basically, I can sum it up this way. Uh, they believe that an infant should be baptized because in baptism, the infant then becomes a part of the covenant. In the same way that in the Old Testament, an infant who was circumcised became a part of the covenant. Circumcision didn't forgive them of their sins. It didn't mean they would be true believers. Like, for example, Esau, right? He was circumcised, but Esau wasn't saved, right? He wasn't a believer. He didn't have genuine faith. They say in the New Testament, it's the same thing. You can be baptized as an infant, become a part of the covenant, but if you don't exercise faith when you're older, you're going to perish. The wrong view of baptism but it doesn't destroy the gospel, because the gospel is still there. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But that's their view of baptism. And this developed during the time of the Reformation. Uh, and I don't want to just focus so much on the Reformation right now, but I would just want to mention this because we're talking about baptism. The Anabaptists that existed during the Reformation, one of their main influences uh, in the 1520s was one of the reformers by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. And Zwingli looked at the New Testament. He started to understand, in the New Testament, you don't have infants being baptized. So he, he toyed around with this idea, and his disciples really carried it through. But when he received a lot of pressure, he backed off from that, kept infant baptism, and developed a lot of this covenantal view of, of baptism that I talked about that the Presbyterians have. And John Calvin really uh, was influential in bringing this, this out as well, this idea of infant baptism and covenant theology. Now, what's interesting is that that Reformed view of paedo-baptism was completely unheard of throughout all of church history before the 1500s. It just doesn't exist. You can maybe say that seeds of it were in Wick, uh, John Wycliffe's study notes in the 1300s, but you don't have this developed at all until the 1500s. And what's interesting is, is that the arguments for infant baptism in the earlier centuries of the church, like we talked about this morning, were never based on covenantalism. 
but they were based on beliefs that even Reformed Christians and Reformed Presbyterians would disagree with. So if you could, uh, James, why use this example? Like if you, you had a board right here that starts with when the New Testament was completed, and you just go down the centuries of when this belief was developing and this belief was developing, if you talk about a Reformed covenantal view of infant baptism, it'd be way down here. It just doesn't exist until the 1500s. And so that's just something important. A lot of us here might not deal with that, uh, like we, but nevertheless, if you interact with or if you're friends with Presbyterians um, it's, and who will argue uh, to, uh, to justify infant baptism, Historically, before the 1500s, basically, no one had ever heard of it. So, okay, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, again, if you haven't had a chance to watch it, but uh, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur <laughs> had, a, had, a, had a, a, a debate about this very issue, right? And, and I still remember, and I loved R.C. Sproul, and still do, and he's very sound in many things, but remember how he kind of stuck. Yeah, John's going to get up here, he's going to have all kinds of Bible verses uh, to back up his position. talk to uh, Presbyterians usually, like if they're uh, strong believers, they, they usually respect history. And they have to feel the weight of not having their view found at all in church history before the 1500s. Whereas we can find in the earliest quotes that I gave this morning, our view of, of baptism there, of believers simply being immersed in the water after a profession of faith. Now you see on biblical tradition starting to develop after that. But nevertheless, you see our, our, our view there. Um, so that's just uh, important to mention. Um, but I was going to touch on a different subject, but if I get into that, we just won't have enough time, I think, this morning. But let me just mention one more thing. Uh, we always need to be careful about baptism because even if you have a right view of baptism... Uh, it can be abused. So think of, like Mike mentioned, Roman Catholics or even Lutherans, how so often at their funerals they will think, uh, say, you know, this person is in heaven because they were baptized. And that goes back to the belief of baptismal regeneration. Uh, we had members here before in our church who are no longer with us, and they attend a church right now that's Lutheran that promotes baptismal regeneration of infants. You know, they, and that's talking to these four adults here, that two years ago, they were all here with us, they were members in this church, and now they're in a church that teaches baptismal regeneration of infants. And, uh, you know, when you carry this through, a lot of times it, it, it's very much abused. 
But even the covenantal Presbyterian view of infant baptism can be abused as well. Now, usually it's not if the church is sound. But once the church starts to compromise a little bit, they can also follow these children are God's children because they're in the covenant. And, they can, and we as Baptists can do the same thing. That person prayed the prayer. They made a profession. They were baptized. Yeah, about, you know, after they were baptized and were in the church for a year, the last 10 years they, they were a carnal Christian, you know. They were barely ever in church no more. But they were saved because they prayed the prayer. You see, it doesn't matter what denomination you're in or what your theological beliefs are, doctrinal beliefs about baptism. If you're not careful, you can abuse it, even if it is the right view of baptism. And so we also have to remember that. And I used that example earlier of at the Bible school, a lot of those people, you know, raised their hand. Six people got saved today. Yay! Well, a lot of them, where are they now? Uh, are they going to be baptized? You know, and you and you go to the prayer meetings. I'm sure Mikey probably faced it before, where you go to the prayer meetings and you get a prayer request. Uh, can you pray? You know, so and so may you know was saved, but uh, you know, uh, just pray that they want to get baptized. Or you know, afterwards, okay, so so just pray that they want to you know come to church now. Or that they want to be members of the church. But again, that goes back to the easy believism. You can assent to the facts of the gospel, but you're not necessarily going to repent. And you might not be baptized. You might not even become a member of the church. You might just be a carnal Christian your whole life, but you're still saved. You see, so again, if we're not careful, even us who we would believe have a right to a baptism, we have to be careful that you know, we don't get unbiblical with this and Okay, any last questions or comments, and then we'll be finished. Yes, Mike. Oh, I'll go ahead. I, I, <laughs> this new thing, you know, the very beginning you mentioned, imagine where our views would be right now, like if we didn't have any Paul in letters. You know, I think it goes back to one thing a lot of these things started, I believe. I can imagine when I hear a lot of the stuff you talk about, I, I bet you the majority of side of the, like, they're saved because they're baptized as infants isn't a lot different than that thing, well, make a profession of faith, right? Because then, to justify the fact that there's no repentance, instead of admitting and seeing the error of their tradition, then, then comes this thing, the carnal Christian, easy believism. Because right? you got to justify the fact that, well, these churches are full of unrepentant sinners, I mean, unrepentant sinners, you know, and then, and, you know, it, and I think that's what you see instead of, you know, just sticking with Scripture and instead of, you know, preaching and teaching from the doctrine and letting the Word have its work, right, then man gets in there and tries to, you know, man thinks, like, we can save, you know, and they, you know, say, oh, you can save, I'll never forget Southern Baptist, even to this day, that call you got, Mike, which is shortly before, among other things, led to us finally saying, you know, that's it. The Southern Baptists are so far the easy believers in this thing. Called up, called Mike, right? Well, someone someone was saved at the Sturgis rally. Yeah, we'd like, like you, Mike, and Stephen from your church to follow up on her on that. 
might not remember. Paul is that that? Hey, just repeat after me. Remember, remember, even they set the video up, an example of the three-minute testimony. Hey, pretty nice bike, huh? Yeah, hey, let me tell you. Well, what Jesus did in my life, I had this bad marriage, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, now I've I come to Jesus, my marriage is a lot better. How about you? You want to give Jesus a chance? That was the gospel. Yeah. You know, but in all kinds of ways like that, right? Comes out of this, hey, just say this. Just say this, whatever, right? And we, our responsibility is to preach the truth, speak the truth. The Holy Spirit does. Well, we a lot of this work, and that's that. We got no. And that's where I think a lot of it is. A lot of sincere people have tried to. I mean, we know there's insincere people too, but sincere people want so much, you know, to see, you know, to, for people to, for their loved ones to be saved, that they'll, they, and I think a lot of them, start, they don't even realize they're just compromising the gospel because they can't get, why, why don't they believe? It's not up to us. Yeah. Be done, and Mike, would you pray for us?